Chapter 13, Part 2 of Twenty Years of the Republic, 1885 to 1905 by Harry Thurston Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The War with Spain, Part 2. In estimating the conduct of the Germans throughout this trying period, it must in fairness be remembered that the German Navy was a new creation. It lacked those traditions which are part of the training of the naval officers of other leading powers. Von Diederich knew nothing either of international law or of naval etiquette. In maritime language he had no sea manners. In this respect his conduct was in sharp contrast to that of the French naval officers at Manila. They were pro-Spanish in their sympathies yet their official attitude was absolutely correct. But von Diederich was, from the point of view of British and American sailors, a parvenu of the sea, and this is why he played his unpleasant part with unnecessary offensiveness. He simply knew no better. His ignorance, in fact, was so complete as to make one doubt whether he even recognized the neat rebukes which were administered to him by an English officer whose name will always be associated with the long American blockade of Manila. This was Captain, afterwards Sir, Edward Chichester, of Her Majesty's Navy, to whom Americans owe a lasting debt of gratitude. When the German squadron at Manila began to assume formidable proportions, there had appeared upon the scene three British warships under the command of Captain Chichester, whose flag flew from the belted cruiser Immortalité. His vessels steamed well in toward the city and took their station not far from where the American squadron lay. Captain Chichester was a fine type of the English gentleman and sailor. Off-duty he was a jovial comrade. On his quarter-deck he was a genuine son of battle. He greeted Admiral Dewey as an old friend, and the two maintained an intercourse which both officially and personally was one of cordial intimacy. After Dewey had put an end to the German violation of the blockading orders, von Diederich wrote to Captain Chichester asking him to join in a formal protest. Presently von Diederich had himself conveyed to the immortalité. Captain Chichester received him in his cabin, where von Diederich found the Englishman poring over a number of volumes on international law. Von Diederich verbally repeated his request of the day before. Ah, said Captain Chichester, shaking his head with seeming grief, I don't see how I can join you in your protest. I've been looking up all the authorities, and I find that this American admiral is so deadly right in everything he does, that if we make a protest we shall only show that we know nothing at all about international law. Note 19, page 582. On another occasion when von Dietrich called, he saw displayed upon the British captain's writing table a large red book. In course of the conversation he chanced to inquire what the book might be. That, said Captain Chichester, is a book on naval etiquette. Indeed, remarked the German, I wasn't aware that such a book existed. Ah, cried Captain Chichester with suspicious eagerness, let me present you with it. You really ought to read it. I'm sure you must need it awfully. You will learn an immense deal from it. It was probably the attitude of the British commander which kept von Dieterich from actually going to the point at which shots must have been exchanged between the American and German ships. Nevertheless, more than once the situation became so strained as to be almost unendurable. On June 30th, however, the first American relief expedition reached Manila, with the 2,500 troops who had sailed from San Francisco on May 25th, convoyed by the cruiser Charleston. It was a small force, yet its arrival was most welcome. It added another cruiser to Dewey's squadron, 
and it enabled General Anderson, who came with it, to man the captured Spanish forts. It brought also a detachment of heavy artillery. Its arrival, however, gave the Germans an opportunity once more to exhibit an insolence which was not only exasperating but extremely stupid, in that it accomplished nothing. When the Charleston and the three transports entered Manila Bay, the Kaiserin Augusta got up steam and followed close behind them, dogging their heels after a fashion that could be explained only as an attempt to be gratuitously offensive. Note 20, page 583. This same intention was shown in a graver form when Admiral Dewey learned that a German cruiser had landed a supply of provisions for the Spanish in Manila. This was not only a breach of the blockade, but a breach of neutrality as well, amounting practically to an act of war. Dewey's patience now broke down completely. That the Germans should be actually furnishing the Spaniards with supplies was something not to be condoned or overlooked. Calling his flag lieutenant, he directed him in level tones to present the admiral's compliments to von Diederich and inform him of this extraordinary disregard of the usual courtesies of naval intercourse which was also a gross breach of neutrality. Then, changing his tone to one of sharp command, he said, And say to Admiral von Diederich that if he wants a fight, he can have it now. Note 21, page 584. Admiral von Diederich quickly betook himself to the British flagship and descended into Captain Chichester's cabin. With a flustered air, he asked, Have you instructions as to your action in case of actual hostilities between myself and the American squadron? Yes replied Captain Chichester. I have. May I ask, then, continued the German, to be informed as to the nature of those instructions? There are only two persons here, said the British captain, who know what my instructions are. One of those persons is myself, and the other is Admiral Dewey. The German retired, pondering this answer and presently he disavowed the action of his subordinates in provisioning the Spaniards, declaring that they had acted without his authority. Another episode must be narrated, and this is one which has received the most general attention, though in reality it was no more significant than many others. A body of Philippine insurgents were threatening the Spanish naval post at Isla Grande in Subic Bay. They could readily have captured it had not the German cruiser Irene appeared and threatened to open fire upon them if they advanced. When news of this was brought to Admiral Dewey, he hastily dispatched the Raleigh and the Concord with instructions to see that Isla Grande was taken at any cost. It was thought that the Irene would offer forcible resistance. Hence, the two American cruisers, as they steamed towards the entrance of Subic Bay, were stripped for battle. No sooner, however, were they sighted by the commander of the Irene than he cut his cable, crowded on all steam, and rapidly departed, leaving Isla Grande an easy conquest to the Americans and Filipinos. Captain Chichester's goodwill was only a reflection of the goodwill of the great nation that he served. Officially, Great Britain maintained a correct attitude of neutrality between the United States and Spain. Yet neutrality may be of many kinds, and Great Britain's neutrality was to express it mildly benevolent to American interests. A score of anecdotes might be narrated to emphasize this assertion, but one may serve as typical of all the rest. Towards the end of May, the supply of fresh provisions on the American squadron was quite exhausted. In the tropical climate of the Philippines this was a very serious consideration. Both officers and men were in sore need of fruit and vegetables and fresh meat. Without them, disease was certain to occur. Yet no available sources of supply existed on that side of the Pacific Ocean. 
the strict laws of neutrality forbade the provisioning of a belligerent in any neutral port. The American dispatch boat Safiro plied back and forth between Manila and Hong Kong. More than once its captain had endeavored to purchase in the latter place a few supplies, but the port officials had intervened to forbid it. The British governor of Hong Kong was General Wilson Black, a fine old soldier with a sense of humor. To him went Mr. John Barrett, at one time American minister to Siam. General, said Mr. Barrett, the Safiro is in port for a short stay under the neutrality rules. Before returning to Manila, the captain would like to purchase a few delicacies for the admiral and his staff. Have you any objection? The shrewd old governor looked intently at Mr. Barrett and smiled a long, slow smile. Delicacies for the admiral, he repeated. Why, certainly I have no objection. Just a few delicacies, of course, for his staff. That is all right. I will give instructions for them to be passed, but of course only delicacies. An hour later, a small fleet of junks was towed out to the Sapiro. As they moved along, a Spanish consular agent rushed up to a British officer, crying out, Stop those boats! They are taking off supplies for the American fleet at Manila. I protest! The officer, a gigantic Irishman, looked benignly down upon the Spaniard, and said with an indescribable drawl, Please don't be disturbed. These boats are only taking off a few delicacies for the American admiral. It may be added that Admiral Dewey thereafter never suffered from any lack of delicacies, and if he and his staff alone enjoyed these accessories to their ordinary fare, they must have personally consumed several hundred tons of excellent provisions. Note 22, page 586. And the humor of General Wilson Black was matched by that of Admiral Dewey himself, who sent with his compliments some of the choicest of these delicacies to the doughty Admiral von Diederich. Mention has been made of an insurrection among the native Filipinos against the Spanish government. The movement was one which, although for a time it was of service in the United States, soon added to the perplexities of Admiral Dewey and finally developed into a serious problem for the American government. Spanish misrule in the Philippine Islands had been almost as harsh as in Cuba, and two years before the war between the United States and Spain, it had led to a brief revolt, August 1896. The leader of this outbreak was a young native named Emilio Aguinaldo. Aguinaldo was of mixed blood. He had been educated at a Dominican college in Manila and was exceptionally intelligent and energetic. His personal qualities made him a chosen leader of his own people, over whom he exercised a peculiar influence. In after years, some of his eulogists in the United States were wont to liken him to Washington, or at the very least, to Bolivar, though the extravagance of the comparison passed the limits of the ludicrous. Aguinaldo was at bottom a shifty Oriental, with all an Oriental's vanity and with the treachery inherent in his Malay blood. The brief revolt which he headed in 1896 had been brought to an end when the Spanish government bribed Aguinaldo and his chief associates to leave the islands and retire to Hong Kong. The bribe money paid then amounted to $400,000, and this sum was in Aguinaldo's possession when Admiral Dewey won the Battle of Manila Bay. The keen-witted Filipino, seeing his opportunity, now sought to return to the Philippines, that he might organize a new rebellion and put an end to Spanish domination. The American Consul General at Hong Kong, Mr. Wildman, regarded Aguinaldo's scheme with favor. At Mr. Wildman's request, Admiral Dewey transported Aguinaldo to Manila, 
and there the natives flocked around his standard until he had under his command a force large enough to surround the city by land and to keep the Spanish troops within the line of their entrenchments. On June 20th, the Filipino insurgents formally declared the independence of the islands and chose Aguinaldo as their president. Admiral Dewey was wise enough to withhold any official recognition of the Filipino Republic. So far as the military action of the insurgents helped the American cause, the Admiral and General Anderson cooperated with them, but no promises of future recognition were ever made. Aguinaldo finally came to view the Americans with suspicion and dislike, and so far as he dared he showed them something like hostility. Meanwhile, a second relief expedition commanded by General F. V. Green and numbering some 3,500 men had reached Manila on July 17th. On the 30th came the third expedition with 4,600 men, and bringing General Wesley Merritt, who had been made military governor of the new Department of the Pacific. On August 4th, from the lookouts on the walls of Cavite was heard the cry, Here comes the Monterey! And soon afterwards the huge floating fortress, lying low in the water and with her gigantic guns frowning from her turrets, moved slowly into the smooth waters of Manila Bay. Note 23, page 588 the long weeks of suspense and of hourly anxiety had now ended for the American admiral. Ashore there were assembled ten thousand fighting men under his country's flag, supplied with artillery and munitions. Afloat, his squadron was more than a match for the vessels of von Diederich. It remained, however, for the Germans to give a final exhibition of their stupid insolence, which, like all the others, ended only in their absolute humiliation. On August 7th, Admiral Dewey and General Merritt sent word to the Spanish Governor-General that an attack would be made upon Manila. The boastful Augustine at once slipped away from the city. He was taken on board a German launch and carried to the Kaiserin Augusta. His second-in-command was unwilling to surrender Manila without fighting, though it was well understood that the Spaniards would resist simply as a matter of honor. On August 13th, General Merritt's troops began to move upon the city while Dewey's squadron at Cavite got under way to shell the batteries. As they passed out from their anchorage, the band on the Immortalité struck up, See, the conquering hero comes! And when the battle flags were broken out on Dewey's cruisers, there came from the English flagship the thrilling strains of the Star-Spangled Banner. Then occurred a curious incident of which only a conjectural explanation can be given. The German squadron weighed anchor and steamed after the Americans so close behind them as to make its purpose seem a hostile one. Some have held that this was merely a final insult from a now impotent foe. Others believe that it was the design of the Germans to fire upon the American ships from the rear so soon as the Spanish batteries should open on them with a frontal fire. Whatever may have been their purpose, it was defeated. Near Manila, the British men-of-war steamed swiftly in between the Germans and the Americans, and then stopped. The hint was one that could not be mistaken, and the German admiral drew off. Note 24, page 589 A day or two afterwards, three of the German vessels departed in the night, and they were seen no more. Meanwhile, the Olympia and her sister ships opened fire upon the force with shell and rapid-fire projectiles while on land the American infantry advanced upon the Spanish lines, sweeping their defenders backward, until at last a flag of truce appeared and the city was surrendered with its garrison of 13,000 troops and more than 20,000 stand of arms. 
an Oregon regiment marched into the great plaza where Admiral Dewey's flag lieutenant hauled down the Spanish standard and hoisted in its place the colors of the United States, while a national salute thundered from the guns of the Olympia. Spanish rule in the Orient was at an end forever. Note 25, page 590. We must now turn to the naval and military operations in the vicinity of the United States. President McKinley's proclamation of April 23rd calling for 125,000 volunteers was followed by a second call on May 25th for 75,000 more. The response to both these calls was satisfactory. Before the end of May, more than 120,000 recruits had been mustered in. They came from all sections of the country, south as well as north, and they were admirable raw material for a fighting army. Yet, as a whole, they were untrained and undisciplined, and time was required to convert them into soldiers effective for work in the field. For a while, reliance must be placed mainly upon the regular army, the available regiments of which were massed at Tampa and Florida, while the volunteers were distributed among three camps, one at Chickamauga Park, one near Washington, Camp Alger, and one at Hempstead, Camp Black, on Long Island. As the work of mobilization and equipment proceeded, it became obvious that the system long established in the War Department was inadequate, and it did in fact break down completely under the strain imposed upon it by the exigencies of the time. This fact is not to be ascribed to Secretary Alger, whose efforts to cope with the situation were heroic. The fault lay rather with the parsimony of Congress during the preceding decade, and with the dry rot which was the result of thirty years of peace but at the moment confusion reigned supreme, and ere long it was to endanger the success of a brief yet brilliant campaign in the field. The financial demands of the war were pressing and were met by Congress with commendable promptness. The month of May showed a Treasury deficit of nearly $19 million. Hence, in June, Secretary Gage was authorized to issue bonds to the amount of $200 million and a Revenue Act was passed which became operative on July 1st, extending the system of internal taxation by an increased excise on beer and tobacco, and by a reversion to the scheme adopted during the Civil War of requiring checks, drafts, telegraphic messages, railway tickets, and many legal and commercial documents to be stamped. Meanwhile, Admiral Sampson was blockading the western coast of Cuba, he bombarded the Spanish works at Matanzas with some effect, but his fleet was kept carefully in hand and out of range of the shore batteries, since the approach by sea of a formidable enemy was momentarily expected. This enemy was the Spanish Admiral Pasquale de Cervera, who on April 29th had departed from the Cape Verde Islands heading westward. Under his orders were four armored cruisers, the Almirante Oquendo, the Vizcaya, the Cristobal Colon, and the Maria Teresa, and three destroyers, the Terror, Fuhrer, and Pluton. All these vessels were of the most modern type, and the main batteries of the cruisers were very formidable. The destination of Admiral Cervera remained a mystery for some three weeks. He was steaming westward, but where he meant to strike, no one could tell. An incipient panic spread among the inhabitants of the Atlantic seaboard. Cities and towns from Portland to Savannah appealed to Washington for special protection. It was the beginning of the summer season, and thousands of persons who usually spend the months of summer near the ocean hesitated to expose their families to the perils of a Spanish raid. The rents of cottages were temporarily lowered. The business of hotels in many watering places languished. 
At any moment, Cervera's sable ships might be descried ready like the old-time buccaneers of the Spanish main to burn and plunder. In Washington, however, the experts knew how idle were these fears. Cervera must of necessity direct his course to some Spanish port in order to renew his supply of coal, exhausted by a long sea voyage. Four points were noted, one of which would probably be his objective. San Juan in Puerto Rico, or El Savannah, Cienfuegos or Santiago in Cuba. Two American fleets were therefore set in motion to intercept the Spaniards or to discover the port to which they had actually repaired. Cervera first appeared off the French island of Martinique, May 11th. The people of this place were so Spanish in their sympathies as to hold back the news of his arrival until after he had sailed away. He next touched at the Dutch port of Curaçao, May 14th, and then made his way uncertainly to Cuban waters. He could not reach Havana without a fight with the American blockading ships. Cienfuegos was not strongly fortified, and so he entered the well-protected harbor of Santiago with all his ships save the destroyer Terror, which he had left behind him at San Juan. Rumors of his presence in Santiago reached Washington on May 19th, and Commodore Schley was ordered to verify the fact and to blockade the port. With what appeared to be a grievous lack of energy and prompt decision, Schley carried out his orders in a hesitating fashion, and thus might easily have given Cervera a chance to coal his ships and once more put to sea. Nor was Admiral Sampson's order to blockade Santiago obeyed immediately by Schley. Note 26, page 593. But on June 1st, Sampson with his fleet of battleships and cruisers arrived, and from that moment the escape of Cervera without fighting was impossible. On June 3rd, before daylight, a young naval constructor, Lieutenant Richmond Pearson Hobson, with seven volunteers, undertook to sink the collier Merrimack in the narrowest part of the channel, thereby blocking it against the exit of Cervera's ships. The attempt was made under a terrific fire of the Spanish batteries, and the Merrimack was sunk, though unfortunately not where Hobson had intended. His exploit was superb in its cool daring, yet had it proved successful, it would have served merely to add Cervera's heavy guns and disciplined seamen to the forces which were massed in Santiago against an American attack by land. Such an attack had already been devised. On June 16th, a long line of 35 transports convoyed by a battleship and a dozen other men of war steamed out of Key West bound for the eastern coast of Cuba. They carried an army corps of about 16,000 men under the command of Major General W. R. Shafter. The object of the expedition was the reduction of Santiago by land in cooperation with the naval forces under Admiral Sampson. Precisely why General Shafter was chosen for this important task is not easy to explain. His previous military service had not been conspicuously brilliant. Originally a farmer, he had enlisted as a volunteer during the Civil War and had ultimately reached the rank of Brigadier General. In 1898 he was physically unfitted for an arduous campaign in a semi-tropical country. Excessively corpulent, he was afflicted by the gout so that he could seldom mount a horse, nor could he even follow closely the movements of the force over which he exercised command. The troops assigned to him, however, were the flower of the regular army, perfect in discipline and well-seasoned by service on the western plains. Three volunteer regiments also formed a part of this expedition the 2nd Massachusetts, the 71st New York, and the 1st Volunteer Cavalry, popularly known as the Rough Riders. Disembarking at Decari and Sibonet near Santiago, note 27, page 595, 
Shafter's command immediately advanced upon the Spanish entrenchments. The country was by nature almost impenetrable because of the dense undergrowth of vines and shrubs, while the humid heat was very trying to the northern soldiers. General Joseph Wheeler, with a detachment of cavalry, drove back a Spanish column after a fierce fight at Las Guasimas, June 24th. On July 1st, practically the entire American army moved upon the complicated outer line of defenses that circled Santiago. Three general actions were fought almost simultaneously, at El Canet, at San Juan, and at Aguadores. In the first two, the Americans were brilliantly successful. The third resulted in a failure, though an unimportant one. At El Canet and at San Juan, the works were stormed in a series of impetuous rushes, and though the Spanish troops fought gallantly, they were swept away by the irresistible élan of the American attack. The American soldiers felt no hatred for their enemies. It would be unfair to say that they entertained a contempt for them. Their feeling resembled an amused tolerance which, even in the shock of battle, made them refuse to take the Spaniards seriously. In the army's vernacular, Spaniards were dagos, and few soldiers felt any hesitation about attacking dagos under all circumstances and without reference to odds. Hence it was that the Spanish fortified positions, protected by a tangle of barbed wire, by almost impenetrable jungle and situated on high ground, were carried through frontal attacks made by troops without artillery support and in the face of a galling fire from small arms superior to their own. To the Spaniards this sort of fighting seemed to violate the accepted rules of war. One Spanish infantryman subsequently gave his impressions in language that was most naive. We saw the Americans running towards us, he said, and we rose and fired at them. But instead of retreating, they actually ran towards us all the faster. There was, in fact, a saying among the American troops, We will take these Spaniards with our bare hands. And in the battles of July 1st, the boast was almost literally carried out. The entire credit of the victories at Santiago is due to the soldiers of the regular army. The war with Spain is the only war waged by the United States that was fought out by regulars and not by volunteers. Of the three volunteer regiments in General Shafter's army, the 2nd Massachusetts was withdrawn from the firing line because the smoke from its black powder gave the enemy the range. The 71st New York became demoralized through the inefficiency of some of its officers and took no serious part in the operations of the day. Note 28, page 596. The 3rd Volunteer Regiment, the Rough Riders, fought bravely and did admirable work. Note 29, page 596. It numbered, however, only 500 men in an army of 15,000, and had it been absent, the result would have been the same. The truth is that of necessity the volunteers could not compare with the disciplined and seasoned troops of the regular army. They lacked steadiness and self-control, and their shooting was often wild. Many of them were individually good marksmen, but not with the service rifle, while many others of them had never practiced marksmanship at all. Note 30, page 596. It is a subject for regret that the administration and commissariat of so fine an army should have been so utterly unworthy of its achievements. Supplies were insufficient. The food provided was not merely unwholesome, but nauseating. There was a lack of transport wagons. The clothing of the men were unsuited to the climate. Smokeless powder was scarce, and the old-fashioned Springfield rifles of the volunteers were almost useless as against the long-range Mausers with which the Spanish troops were armed. 
Although the purpose of the Americans was to take a fortified city, no siege artillery had been provided, and in the fight at El Canet only four small field pieces were present to support the American attack. After the Battle of July 1st, there set in a reaction of feeling which threatened to impair both the morale and the physical fitness of the army. The trenches were full of water from the tropical rains, malarial fever began to spread among the troops, and there were reported some cases of the dreaded vomito. The army at no one time had rations sufficient for more than twenty-four hours, while medicine and surgical attendants were shockingly inadequate to its needs. Note 31, page 597. Two days later, July 3rd, General Shafter, far in the rear of the army, sweltering in the heat and tortured by gout, felt the effect of these depressing conditions so strongly that he telegraphed his belief that Santiago could not be taken with his present force. Nevertheless, he sent to the Spanish general a demand for the surrender of the place to which a curt refusal was returned. Note 32, page 597. On that same day, however, and even while Shafter was telegraphing in terms of marked despondency, the coup de grace was given to the Spanish cause. At nine in the morning, Admiral Cervera's six ships emerged from the harbor entrance, and under a full head of steam sought to break through the blockading fleet. In a running fight of four hours, every one of his vessels was destroyed by the terrific fire of the American battleships and cruisers, which in their turn suffered scarcely any loss. The Spanish admiral and more than 1,700 of his officers and men were captured. The victory was as complete as that of Dewey at Manila. It was less glorious because at Santiago the odds were overwhelmingly against the Spaniards. They were outnumbered three to one, and it was a fight of cruisers against battleships. By an unhappy chance, Admiral Sampson, whose far-seeing sagacity had planned the battle just as it was actually fought, took no part in it. On board the New York, he had gone to Sebonnet to confer with General Shafter, and he returned in time to fire only a few long-distance shots and to be a mark for the Spanish batteries on the shore. From this moment, the fall of Santiago was assured. General Toral, in command of the city, delayed surrendering it with true Spanish procrastination, making demands and asking concessions which the Americans refused. Finally, Admiral Sampson moved some of his larger ships within range and began dropping shells with mathematical precision in the center of the town. This proved to be an effective argument, and on July 17th a formal surrender was made to General Shafter. At high noon on the same day, a detachment of American cavalry, infantry, and artillery entered the city and hoisted the national flag over the municipal buildings. More than 10,000 Spanish soldiers were given up as prisoners and, after a brief detention, were sent to Spain. An unusual incident marked their departure. They published an address to the soldiers of the American army, in which they said, We should not be fulfilling our duty as men in whose breasts there exist both gratitude and courtesy, should we embark for our beloved Spain without sending you our most cordial and sincere good wishes and farewell. You fought us as men face to face and with great courage. You have complied exactly with all the laws and usages of war as recognized by the armies of the most civilized nations of the world. You have given an honorable burial to our dead. You have treated our wounded with great humanity. And lastly, to us whose condition was terrible, you have given freely of food, of your stock of medicines, and you have honored us with distinction and courtesy. With this high sentiment of appreciation from all of us, it remains to us only to utter our farewell, 
and with the greatest sincerity we wish you all happiness and health in this land which will no more belong to our dear Spain. Note 33, page 599. The downfall of Santiago gave to the Americans control of the whole eastern end of Cuba. But this of itself did not necessarily involve the termination of hostilities. Havana was still untaken. It was garrisoned by a very strong force and was protected by powerful fortresses. Its people were intensely loyal to the Spanish cause and were eager for the Americans to make an attack upon the place. Reverses elsewhere had no effect upon the Havanese. Women's garments were suspended in conspicuous places throughout the town bearing placards inscribed, to be worn by those who are willing to surrender. The war, however, was ended through considerations which had nothing to do with the condition of affairs in Cuba. One powerful factor in bringing Spain to terms was found in action taken by the Navy Department in Washington. Early in June, Spain had got together at Cadiz a second squadron commanded by Admiral Camara. It consisted of the battleship Pelayo, an armored cruiser, six converted cruisers and four destroyers, with a number of auxiliary vessels. Note 34, page 599. On June 18th, a report reached Washington that Admiral Camara was under orders to proceed to the Philippines by way of the Suez Canal and to fall upon Admiral Dewey's squadron ere it could be reinforced. For a moment, the news aroused a feeling of anxiety. The Palayo was supposed to be a very formidable vessel, and on paper at least, the cruisers assigned to accompany it were more than equal to those which Dewey had at his disposal. Many were the plans suggested to check this threatening expedition. Mr. William Randolph Hearst, the wealthy proprietor of a newspaper in New York, cabled an order directing one of his agents in London to purchase a merchant vessel, loaded with coal, and proceed to the Suez Canal with the purpose of their sinking the ship so as to block the canal against Camara's squadron. Note 35, page 600. But meanwhile, an effective counterstroke had been planned in Washington. On June 27th, Commodore J.C. Watson was put in command of a squadron consisting of the battleships Iowa and Oregon and four cruisers, and the announcement was officially made that this squadron was to sail immediately for the coast of Spain. The maneuver worked effectively. It was perfectly well known in Madrid that the great Spanish seaport cities, such as Barcelona and Cadiz, were practically defenseless. Their old-fashioned fortifications would have crumbled like chalk before the huge guns of Watson's battleships. To send Camara away would be simply to invite attack. Nevertheless, Camara began his voyage, passing through the Suez Canal on July 2nd. The Anglo-Egyptian government forbade him to take on coal at Port Said. He lingered for a while, but presently, after he had received the news of Cervera's defeat at Santiago, he turned the prows of his vessels homeward. All that he had accomplished was to enrich the treasury of the canal by the sum of $280,000 which he was compelled to pay in tolls. The menace of Watson's squadron had accomplished, however, even more than at first sight was apparent. These European powers, which had been unfriendly to the United States, were aghast at the thought of American ships of war carrying on hostile operations in European waters. The immense energy and the naval prowess of the United States inspired nervous apprehension in Paris, Vienna, and Berlin. Hence, strong pressure was brought to bear upon the Spanish government to end a war in which no hope for Spain could be discerned. This pressure was supplemented by an appeal from Spain's commercial interests and by the condition of the Spanish treasury. 
Spanish securities since the beginning of the war had fallen in value from a little more than sixty to a little less than thirty. Spanish commerce was at a standstill. The Atlantic seaports dreaded an American invasion. Hence, on July 26, the French ambassador at Washington, Monsieur Jules Cambon, on behalf of the Spanish government, opened negotiations for peace. Through Monsieur Cambon, President McKinley announced the terms on which the United States would consent to suspend hostilities. On August 12, a protocol was signed at Washington as a preliminary to a treaty of peace to be afterwards negotiated. The war was practically at an end. The news was at once telegraphed to the American commanders in different parts of the world. It reached Puerto Rico just in time to end a campaign which had only then begun. A force of 3,500 American troops under Major General Miles had been landed in that island and had advanced upon the capital. Only slight resistance was made by the Spaniards, while the inhabitants of the various towns and villages welcomed the invaders with triumphal arches and by strewing flowers in their path. This 19 days campaigning was therefore the source of considerable raillery in the United States, where it was described as a military picnic. When, however, the news of the signing of the protocol arrived, the American troops were in line of battle and a really serious engagement was impending. It was not fought out because of telegraphic orders from Washington and from Madrid. To all intents and purposes, the war was over. It had lasted less than four months, yet in that time the power of Spain had been completely humbled. Her possessions in Asia and in the Western Indies lay at the mercy of the United States, which, by reason of this fact, now ceased to be reckoned merely as a North American republic and assumed its rightful place as a great world power. Note 36, page 602. End of chapter 13